You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Our uh, scripture texts are going to be quite varied this morning. I um, want to apologize, but a lot of times... We are going to be flipping through our Bibles quite a bit this morning. Uh, so the scripture text will be varied, but let me introduce the message really with these words. I mean, in the church, there are a lot of words and concepts that we use all the time that um, sometimes we don't bother to explain. And it's kind of, it can be almost like when you go to the doctor and you've had some prognosis and he begins to rattle off all this Latin to you and, and you're like, okay. Um, I don't know if that sounds good or bad. <laughs> Can you explain that to me, please? And every discipline has its jargon, if you will. It's not always that the doctor is so much smarter than us. It's just they're used to speaking in those categories. If he were to go and follow you to your workplace and you began to speak in your categories, he would have questions as well. And in the church, we do a lot of the same thing. We talk about things and we assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. And I'll give you a really practical example of what I'm talking about is funerals. You know, I've actually the last, I don't know, for the last couple of years, uh, I have quit standing up and introducing funerals by saying we all know why we're here because I've discovered that in many cases folks maybe aren't completely clear as to why we're here at a funeral. And you'd think that would be something that we would all have a grasp of. But I think that's one thing that we haven't bothered to explain what is the purpose of a funeral service. Uh, There's a lot of confusion on it. So I've begun to explain what a funeral service is about. And this morning we come, obviously we come to uh, observe and officiate baptism. And uh, I I just want to begin this morning by just asking a question. And no one needs to give any kind of answer out loud. I'm just going to throw a question out. And in your own mind, kind of silently to yourself, um, think this through. If I asked you, what is a sacrament? Think, what's a sacrament? Okay. Uh, What is the purpose of a sacrament, a biblical sacrament? Why are the sacraments given? Um... What do they do? Do they do anything? Um, And where are these answers, if we have them, taught in Scripture? And again, let's think about the categories. As we think about our answers to those, we'll we'll come to discover. And if you're like me, you'll come to discover. You'll be like, wow, do I... Do I know this very well? The exercise is not to make anybody feel dumb or stupid. It's the last thing I'd want to do. Um, as you can tell, as I go through this message, um, I, I believe you're all very, very intelligent, and I want to meet you in that intelligence. But the exercise is to say, well, do we, do we know why we're gathered here? Do we know exactly what we're doing? Do we know what the purpose of this is? Do we know why we're doing this? Do we know what this is supposed to do? Now, with that in mind, let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 12, if you will, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll kind of plunge in, and I'll show you 
what my approach is here this morning. Exodus 12, as we find a place, we'll pray and ask God for His help, and we'll plow through these questions together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we look to You and we pray, Father, that You'd be pleased to bless us this morning as we look through Your Word this morning, as we seek to find the answers of the questions that are before us, Father. As we simply ask ourselves, what is a sacrament all about? Why have You given us the sacraments? And what do the sacraments teach? And what are their purpose? And what do they do? Well, Father, we ask that you be pleased to bless us, O Father. Bless us through your word, for it is your word that's the only place we'll get these answers. And it's in your word that's the only place where uh, you you speak to us. You speak to us through your word. And Father, we we pray that you would be pleased, O Father, to, to bless us to this end for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think when I first threw the question out, I have a sneaking suspicion as we think about the sacraments that many are going to say, okay, the sacrament, um, that's probably the Lord's Supper and baptism. If uh, we have any Roman Catholic friends with us this morning, you may have had a few things that you would add to that. You might add penance to that or confirmation or uh, some of these other things may be uh, things that are uh, you're thinking through. Um, but uh, for Protestants, we, we recognize uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I know for myself in wrestling with the sacraments and trying to understand the sacraments that it's been easier for me to start actually with the Lord's Supper because I think it's easier to get our minds around. And the Lord's Supper doesn't come to us in a vacuum. It actually has a very rich Old Testament development. And that's why we come to Exodus chapter 12. And many of you will have in your Bibles a little heading over Exodus 12 that says something like Passover. Um, We come to the institution of the Passover. And the context here is Israel is enslaved in Egypt. They've been enslaved for quite some time. And they've been in Egypt for about 400 years, ever since about the last 20 years of Jacob's life. And they're crying out to God because of their enslavement. And God has raised Moses, and he's, seeking, he's moving to deliver them. And he's been, in, he's been hitting Egypt with a number of plagues. And what we come to here this morning is the last and final plague. And if you look at verse 1 with us, um, Exodus 12, verse 1 There the Lord says to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And I just remind you that notice there's a reference to the calendar here. I just say that on the side. I think it's quite interesting. But verse 3, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall uh, make uh, your count for the lamb. I also want to point as we go along here the household dynamic that's present here. This is to be done for each household. Let's hold on to that. Verse 5. 
Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, as you shall eat in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord God. Bless the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now, in a thumb sketch, what's going on here? Uh, God is telling Moses to instruct the people to take a lamb, not just any lamb, but a lamb without blemish, a lamb with a certain specification, if you will, to slaughter the lamb, to take its blood and paint it on the, on the doorposts, if you will, and the lintel of the house. For God is going to execute judgment on Egypt. But as God is executing judgment on Egypt, as he goes through the town, as he looks at the house when he sees the blood on the lintel and the doorposts of the house, he will pass over, and thus the, the name Passover, he will pass over the house. Now, I, don't, I, I like to start with this because I think it's easy for us to see what the significance of this is, and it's easy, easy for us to see uh, what this is pointing to. If we've got blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, we are covered, if you will, we are protected, if you will, from the wrath of God as he passes over. So the, the, the focus here is on the lamb, isn't it? The focus is on the lamb. The focus is on the promise. And it's a gospel promise that if you are covered, if you will, by the blood of the lamb, you will be spared from the judgment. It has a household dynamic, and it also has a covenantal dynamic. If you just turn back with me to chapter 2, and verses 23 and 24. Verses 23 and 24. There we read these words, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And look, in verse 24, God heard their groaning and remembered his what? He remembered his covenant. And that's a covenant. The covenant's another one of those words that maybe we don't hear about very often. I fear that maybe we don't hear about very often. But when we do hear about it, we think to ourselves, what is that? 
But once you begin to see covenants in the Bible, you're going to see them all over the place. This morning we're going to see them quite a bit. God is remembering His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And that's why we began our service this morning in Genesis 15. Because in Genesis 15, we read about that strange ceremony where Abraham cut these animals in half, and then God passed between the two halves, if you will, and made this covenant with Abraham. And this covenant with Abraham, we're going to talk a lot about this morning, because sometimes we refer to it as the Abrahamic covenant. Sometimes we uh, refer to it as the covenant of grace. But what I want us to see right now is that the Passover has been instituted by God, and there is a sign. The blood on that doorpost and the blood on that lintel is a sign, and that sign is pointing to a gospel promise. Namely, if you have the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of your house, God will pass over your house. You will be covered from His wrath and destruction. And that this is all couched in covenantal language. Can we hold on to all of that? I know we can. Um, let's hold on to all of that. See, I'm starting to run out of hands here, Pastor. That's okay. In a couple minutes, we'll be done with this. Just hold on there for a few moments. I want to take you now back to Genesis 15 again. Genesis 15. Again, a lot of these passages we're not as familiar with. But in Genesis 15, in verses 12, 13, and 14, as God is making his covenant with Abram, his name is Abram at this point. We'll see later that it's changed to Abraham. We're told in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. What God is saying right here in this Abrahamic covenant is, say, listen, your offspring, your children, they're going to become enslaved in a foreign land. Well, that foreign land is Egypt. But then God makes a promise, and it's part of this promise, this covenantal promise. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Why will God bring judgment? Because God is righteous. He is holy. Uh, he, it's hard for us to get our minds around that because uh, we are sinners. And sometimes we think only the big sins are the, the real deal. We don't think much of the little sins. But if we were completely holy and we were completely uh, pure, if you will, and just, even the smallest infraction of our law would be something we would have to deal with. And God is here promising to deal with this. And there's only one way of escape, and that is the blood of the Lamb. Now, with all of this in mind, turn to the New Testament, if you will, to the Gospel of John. And here we'll begin to see the rich imagery of the New Testament sacrament of the Lord's Supper. If you look at John chapter 1, Verse 29, and here at Tri-State, we've been doing a verse-by-verse -verse study of John's gospel, so it wasn't all that long ago we were looking at these verses. But in chapter 1, verse 29, uh, John the Baptist, that is the he in this verse, uh, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. 
Now, this would have been a staggering claim. And he does it again in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with his two disciples. In verse 36, he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, if you just turn a couple of pages to the left to Luke chapter 22, a couple pages to the left to Luke 22, and you look at verses 7 and 8, and the context of this this is the last week. This is the, this, these are the last hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. And Jesus is gathering the context in verse 7 there, Luke 22, verse 7, the day of unleavened, unleavened bread on which the Passover, you see the context is the Passover, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So this day comes, verse 8, Jesus sends Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And if you look down to verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now look at verse 19. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And here Christ is instituting this. And what he's instituting is not being instituted in a vacuum. It has the Passover as its context. It's couched in covenantal language, as we're going to see here in a couple minutes. It's the context. It's the Passover and the covenant of grace. And Jesus takes the, the bread, if you will, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body. Now, obviously, he's not speaking literally here. No one around the table would have taken that as a literal statement. They would have taken it as a figurative statement. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And what is he pointing to with this sign? Obviously, he is pointing to what he will do the next day, namely, go to the cross in the place of his people for the sins of his people. And in the same way, you look at verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. You see the word covenant there. You're going to, you, you get used to, you, you start to see this, you're going to see it all over the Bible. This is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, this is the new covenant that's going to be ratified in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So here, what do we see? So what have we seen so far? God gives Moses to give to Israel the sign of Passover. And the sign of the Passover is the blood on the lintel. And the blood on the lintel, the, the, the lamb is sacrificed, the blood's put on the lintel, and the angel of destruction passes over the house. And it's in that context that the Lord's Supper is given to us. And when Jesus institutes, after, as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper to us, the Passover is set aside. It's no longer, um, it's no longer appropriate after Christ's blood is shed. He is the Lamb of God. And the important thing we see here is what is the sacraments doing? 
The sacraments, first of all, we ask, what are they? They are rites, if you will, that are given by God, which contain signs that point to gospel reality. They point to gospel promises. We could put it another way, and even more accurately, they're pointing to Jesus. It points to Jesus. The Old Testament saints looked at the Passover, and they looked forward to the Messiah who would come. Did they perfectly understand all this? No. Do we perfectly understand all this? No. But what we do understand is they looked forward to these gospel promises. And after Jesus institutes the Passover, well now, or institutes the Lord's Supper, now what do we do? We look back. We look back to the Messiah who has come. And what does this do for us? It does the same thing that the gospel proclaimed us for us. If we have faith, if we're embracing Christ, it strengthens that faith. If we're rejecting Christ, what does it do? It calls us to believe on him, right? So much more could be said about that. Let's, let's look at baptism now. You probably thought, is he ever going to get to baptism? Yes, we're at baptism now, okay? We're at baptism now. But I think it helps us to understand what these sacrament stuff's all about if we look at the Lord's Supper first. I think it's easier for us to grasp because baptism doesn't show up out of a vacuum either. Baptism has a very rich background in what we call circumcision. And if you're like me, circumcision, you're thinking circumcision. Well, what's the meaning of that? I mean, how many of you this morning woke up thinking about circumcision? I'm guessing I'm the only one. Am I right? Raise your hand. And why was I thinking about it? Well, it was because I got to teach on it this morning. That's why. Now, I don't wake up every morning thinking about that. But let's, let's do the same thing. Let's take a look at the background. If you go to Genesis 12, look at a few passages. Genesis 12. This is the call of Abram. He is called Abram at this point. A few years ago, we went verse by verse all the way through Genesis. And we were studying these passages a few years ago. And in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now look at this last part of verse 3. And some of you remember when we were back here studying this, I made a lot of noise about this last verse. In verse 3, and I didn't do it one Sunday, I didn't do it five Sundays, I didn't do it ten Sundays, I think I probably did it 20 Sundays or more, because this is such an incredible promise that's given to Abraham that's part of the covenant of grace, if you will, namely that in Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth, yeah? Would that include the Eckleberry family? You better believe it. Oh, you better believe it. Would that include the Bean family this morning? You better believe it. The householders. That's what we're here to celebrate. Better believe it. See, this is where the rubber of all this really hits the road, isn't it? That in Abraham, in this guy that walked 3,000 years ago on the earth, that in him God would make a promise, and that promise would have relevance to us this morning in Chester, West Virginia. Yeah. 
that we would be blessed. Now, some of us say, how is that possible? Because Abraham will have a son who will have a son who will have a son. You get the drift. And one of these sons will be Jesus. That's the point of the genealogy. You know, you decide you're going to sit down, you're going to read the Old Testament, so you turn, or the New Testament, rather, and you turn to Matthew, and what do you got? A zillion names you can't pronounce. You ever notice that? And that's the part where you go, you skip, and then you start when it's all over. But there's an important part. Matthew starts with that because what he wants to show is that Jesus, in terms of his biological descent, Jesus is a son of Mary. He is not a son. He's an adopted son of Joseph. Jesus escapes original sin by having no human father. I know I'm throwing categories out there now, and we're like, what is that? We'll have to deal with that another time. Now, we can't deal with it all this morning. But what's important for us to see is that Jesus is the offspring of Abram, and that in Jesus, blessing will come to all of these families in the earth. That's why we're here this morning, isn't it? Now, with that in mind, take a look at Genesis 17. Turn to Genesis 17. And here, uh, the Lord is going to institute a sacrament, an Old Testament sacrament. And it's the sacrament of circumcision. In verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Let me stop right there and point out that there's a call to discipleship right there. Sometimes we skip over that and we don't think about that. But the Lord calls Abram to walk before me and be blameless. If Abraham were to say, why? Well, the answer is, I'm God Almighty. That should be a pretty good reason, right? I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and, your mu and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant, there's the covenant again. My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, what's starting to develop here is this covenant promise that namely what God is doing, and this is happening from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22, what God is in the business of doing is going out and grabbing people. And he's grabbing them and he's pulling them to himself. And he's in the process of making them his people. He is in the process of covenanting to dwell with them. And he's in the process of making himself their God. And we find this echoed through the Bible. The last echo of it is in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation. It goes all the way through the Bible. Now, in verse 8, he says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Here God is instituting in the context of a covenant a sign that signifies something. And this is why as Protestants, we only consider these two things as sacraments. 
because of these components. Now in verse 12, God says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Notice the household component here. Some of you are in the medical community. You can answer this better than me, but would it be safe to circumcise in this economy a child any younger than eight days? I'm guessing no. I'm not a doctor, medical doctor. I'm getting a no. Some of you say, I don't know how safe it is at eight days. The point is, as soon as possible, these male infants are to be circumcised. They are to be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. You shall, so shall my covenant be in your flesh and an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off. Now, hold on to that. You can let all the other stuff go, by the way. Hold on to this for a moment, namely the idea of being cut off. Circumcision is a a rite where the foreskin is cut off. And here we have this idea of being cut off. Now, I want to point your attention so far in Genesis 17 that what we see here is not a response of Abraham. That is not the central point here. The central point of what's going on is what God is doing. This whole chapter is about what God is doing. God calls Abraham to himself. God says, walk before me and be blameless because I am God Almighty. God says, here, I want you to circumcise all the males in your household all the way down to your males who are only eight days old. And this is going to be a sign for you. Well, a sign. Well, what does this sign point to you? What's this sign? What, what is being pointed to here in this, this strange uh, rite here? Well, let's think about the meaning. One of the things we can already look at here is circumcision is a sign of the covenant. So we can see it's a covenantal sign. So one of the things we would see is that it marks off the people who are in this covenant from people who are not in the covenant. In other words, it's a sign that shows those who belong to God, if you will, in distinction from those who do not. But there's many other things. It's really, if you turn to Deuteronomy 30, Deuteronomy 30, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 30. I know for your morning devotions this morning, you were up early in the morning and in Deuteronomy 30, weren't you? Uh, All of you were in there. I know you were in there. Uh, I think one of the reasons this stuff's so murky to us is we just don't know some of these passages as well as as maybe we could. If you look at verse 6, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you might live. Someone say, say, what? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, someone might read that and say, you know what, is you sure that belongs in the Old Testament? Because that sounds a lot like a New Testament thing, doesn't it? The Lord is going to circumcise your heart so that you will love him. 
In other words, the Lord is going to do some kind of mysterious work in touching the heart so that the heart that is indifferent to the Lord, which is how we are as unbelievers, we wake up in the morning, we go about our business without really considering Jesus, without really thinking a lot about Jesus. We certainly aren't aligning our lives and our homes and our families around Jesus as the central principle of our lives. As unbelievers, we just go about, go about things. We need God to touch our hearts and renew our hearts. And in theology, we call this regeneration. But to make it a little simpler to understand, we could just simply call it heart renewal. And this is what goes on on the divine side of things when a person converts to Jesus. You know, we're walking in life and we're going this way. And then we hear Isaiah say, turn to me. Or actually, God speaking through Isaiah says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I'm God and there is no other. Now, if I'm walking this way and God is telling me to turn to him, well, obviously my back is to him. And that's the posture of unbelief. Now, when we turn to him, that is the human side of it. Conversion is the human side of it. But before that conversion takes place, God touches the heart. Enabling the heart to see. Enabling the heart to come to its senses. And that is the work that's being described in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, with the language of circumcision. So we see circumcision speaks about heart renewal. Now, if you turn to Jeremiah, just keep turning right Turn past the Psalms, turn past Isaiah, get to Jeremiah, a pretty well-known passage in Jeremiah 31, where we find, definitely find New Testament language. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. There we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new what? A new covenant. You see, there's that word again a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That's the Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant that's made at Sinai. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see the covenant language here? God is grabbing people. He's bringing them to himself. He's giving them the sign of the covenant, if you will. And by the way, just because you get the sign of the covenant doesn't mean that you're saved. There's a lot of people who were circumcised who were not saved. Even in Abram's household, there was Ishmael, wasn't there? We don't have names of everybody who was in his household. We don't have an inventory of all the believers in Abraham's house. We know Ishmael was not. But nevertheless, God is calling people to himself. They're getting the sign, if you will. And God is promising a day of a new covenant. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And this new covenant is the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace, where God is promising to dwell with us, He's promising to to bring people uh, to Himself, and He's promising to make them His people, He's promising to be their God. 
And it is that covenant that Jesus ratifies with his blood on the cross. Now, we're in Jeremiah. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 4 and verse 4. We're going to get another idea of what circumcision means from that verse. It won't take us long to develop that. It's pretty straightforward. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Now here the idea of repentance is in view. The idea of repentance is in view was circumcising the foreskin of your hearts, putting away the old. In the New Testament, the Paul, Paul often speaks. He speaks in a couple of places in the New Testament of putting off the old, putting on the new, putting on the old man, putting on the new man. So this idea of cutting off, cutting off the old, cutting off the sin, putting on the new, involves repentance. And one more. Let's look at one more. Isaiah 52. Just turn left. One book, Isaiah 52 and verse 1. Look at one more and we'll start putting this, we'll start assembling this thing. We'll have everything out of the box, we'll start putting it together. Isaiah 52, verse 1 Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. The uncircumcised and the unclean. Now, what is that? A circumcision now is being used in a reference. It's being used negatively. And it's being used as a reference of pollution, corruption, defilement, being unclean, if you will. So what do we have? We could put it this way. We could call it consecration. Consecration is another one of those words we may not use. Consecration is simply setting aside where God would set something aside for holy purposes. We could talk about consecration. We could talk about renewal of heart, repentance, cleansing, belonging. Uh, to God. Now, w- these are the things that circumcision is pointing to. And I want to, I, as we put all this together, where do we find these things? Where do we obtain these things? There's only one place where we can find these things because all of these things are gospel graces and they're only found in Christ Jesus. So the whole point here is, is that circumcision itself, again, just like the Passover, is pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the gospel. It's pointing to the promises and the benefits of the gospel. We say, okay, well, let me demonstrate that. Take a look at Luke with me. Luke chapter 2. We don't have to look at too many more passages and we'll be done. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Luke 2, verse 21. Jesus has just been born. He's just been born to Mary. He was miraculously conceived in her womb. And we're told in verse 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Here we see Jesus being circumcised. Now, we probably have never asked this question, but let's ask it right now. If circumcision is a sign of a renewed heart, if circumcision is a sign of repentance, 
if circumcision is a sign of defilement and cleansing, if circumcision is a sign of belonging to God, I think some of you are already starting to see the tension here. How could Jesus undergo this? Now, on the, on the surface of it, and I think this is what we do in our minds when we read it, we read this passage and don't think much about it because in our minds it's like, okay, all, all infant males are to be circumcised when they're eight days old. But let's think of the imagery of it because the imagery of it is going to raise our eyebrows. We're going to say, wait a second, is it possible that Jesus could be excluded from the people of God? That's unthinkable. Does Jesus have any defilement in his heart? That's unthinkable. Is he polluted or corrupt in any way? Does Jesus need a renewed heart? He's the Holy One of Israel. So how is it that he undergoes the sign of circumcision? You don't need to turn there because I've asked you to turn so many places this morning. and You've been so kind to do it. I'm just going to turn there myself. I'm going to turn to a passage of Scripture in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 53, and it supplies the answer. And it will bring a tear to your eye if you see it for the first time this morning. In Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah is prophetically speaking of Christ. And in Isaiah 53, verse 8, we read, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off. You remember I asked you to hold on to that. What in the world is that saying? What that's saying is that when Jesus went to the cross, because this is speaking of his cross work here, and as Jesus goes to the cross, and takes the sin of his people, he becomes a covenant breaker, so to speak. Not because of his sin, he had not, but because of the sin he willingly took upon himself. And Genesis 17, verse 14, makes it very clear that the one who breaks the covenant is to be cut off. And Christ, as he goes to the cross, is willing to be cut off for sinners like you and sinners like me. And there we get a new meaning of the cross. The cross itself is the circumcision of Christ, if you will. Because there in that bloody rite, Jesus is being cut off where he would say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that moment in time, he was cut off for us. I can't say this without immediately thinking of that song that I love so much. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. Now, how is that related to baptism? In Matthew 3, and you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to, but in Matthew 3... Matthew chapter 3. We're going to get this all connected. Matthew 3. There Jesus is coming to John in verse 13. And he's coming 
to John to be baptized by him. That's verse 13. Now, mind you, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. And lots of people do think about this because people do. I know just being in pastoral ministry, people do ask this question. Let me, let me look at this passage here, and you'll know what the question is. Verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Jesus comes to John. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. And Jesus comes to John. He says, I'm here to be baptized. And John's hesitant, and rightly so. How is it that he who is without sin, how is it the Holy One of Israel could submit himself to a baptism of repentance? The answer is in our Scripture memory verse. Luke chapter 12, verse 50. That's why I chose that verse. Luke 12, verse 50. Here's the answer. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the cross, and he's using baptism language for the cross. And why is he doing that? Because what takes away the sin? What washes us from our sin? The answer is the blood of Christ. And it's not so much the blood, it's the death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus steps in our place in order to die for our sins. And in that sense, the cross becomes the baptism of Christ. And here at the cross, both circumcision and baptism kiss each other. They meet. And just as the Passover is a bloody rite, that is inappropriate after the shed blood of Christ. It gives way to the Lord's Supper, so too the sacrament of circumcision, which is a bloody rite, gives way to water baptism. It's instituted by Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 19. He institutes it himself. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you because it's part of the liturgy this morning when we call our candidates forward. Let me just read it to you as soon as I find it. Matthew 28, verse 19, where Jesus commissions his church and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end. Now, we're reading those verses, and we might be thinking, wow, you know what? There's discipleship in view there, isn't there? Yes. Remember, God says to Abraham, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And as they're circumcised, they're called to discipleship. In other words, they're called to follow hard after God. Now, as we've looked at these sacraments, what we have discovered is that the sacraments point to the gospel. Passover points to the gospel. The Lord's Supper points to the gospel. Circumcision points to the gospel. Baptism points to the gospel. And if I might make application right now, what we have to resist, there's this constant temptation to turn these sacraments into being all about us. 
One of the reasons I had so much trouble figuring all this out is because I was constantly hearing that the primary issue in baptism is about me and my faith. And we haven't seen any of that as we've looked through the Scriptures. It's not a sign that Rick Anderson has faith and that Rick Anderson is now walking in obedience with the Lord, although as an adult, if you're baptized, that's certainly going to be in view. But it's a sign of the covenant promises that are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. We know from Sunday school, it's never the answer. The, the right answer to the Sunday school's teacher is never me. It's always Jesus, isn't it? I mean, if you're daydreaming and you didn't even hear the question, and then she looks right at you and calls you and says, what, uh, do you have an answer, young man? Uh, I was thinking about something altogether, but how about Jesus? That's right, you got it. What is baptism about? It's about Jesus. But we have this temptation, and you're going to hear voices all over the place that, no, it's about our faith. That's not what it's about. As we've looked through all this material, what have we seen? It consistently points to the gospel. I will tell you what baptism is. What does it do? Baptism is a gospel preacher. That's what baptism is. Circumcision was a gospel preacher. The Lord's Supper is a gospel preacher. Passover is a gospel preacher. How do they preach the gospel? Because they point to the same promises of the gospel. The gospel we preach with words, we read in the Bible, we see in words on the page, we get the promises. But God has instituted two sacraments to the New Testament church so that we would have visible signs that signify the gospel promises. Does that make sense? And it's because of that and by virtue of that, we apply the gospel to children. Why wouldn't we apply the gospel to children? Is there any reason? And we recognize these eighth-day-old infants would not have been able to verbalize their faith. You know, I've read material that, have, that has said this, an eighth-day-old infant cannot have faith. And when I read that material, I cringe. And I've read it by, I mean, there's some big-name people that have written stuff like that. And I cringe. Who are we to say that an infant cannot have faith? One of, the, one of the things that I often do when I'm meeting people, and many of you will contest to this, when you come to Tri-State, start making a habit of coming to see us, eventually Tammy and I will get around to you and we'll say, come on, man, well, let's go get something to eat. And one of the things I love to ask people is, tell me about your testimony. And once in a while, someone will say, you know, I don't have any fancy testimony. I just don't even really remember when I started believing. I've just always believed. Okay, you don't remember when you started believing. Well, was it at six? I don't know. Was it at eight? I really don't know. Was it at three? I couldn't tell you. Was it at one? It's a mystery to me. Then to that, I would add mentally handicapped. My wife works with mentally handicapped, and I've had opportunities to go and minister to the mentally handicapped. I've had opportunities to do services, especially at Christmas time, the mentally handicapped, and they're usually glued to us when we do those things. Are we going to say, because they can't speak a word, that God can't convert them, that he can't save them, that he can't bring them to himself? 
We have no business going into the secret things, for the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. The gospel has been revealed, and it belongs to the children. And that gives a lot of meat to Jesus' words when he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. That is not given to us by one gospel writer, not by two gospel writers, but it's given to us by three gospel writers, just in case we missed it by the first two. It gives it to us a third time. We do need those things, don't we? If we could have dust and go get our... Uh, the children, Lisa and the children in here will will move. Um, we'll bring folks in here. And while they're doing that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, Father, for these great gospel promises, Father. We've been looking at your gospel since we started in these last 45 minutes or so and how our hearts are warmed by these great truths that we're not left to our own, and that you, you could have just simply given us your word, and that, was, that would have been enough. But you have given us these sacraments of the Lord's Supper and the sacrament of baptism. And before that, you gave us the Passover and you gave us circumcision. And all of these things point to Jesus, and they all have their yes in Jesus. And, oh, Father, we thank you for the new life we have in him. We thank you for the fact that our baptism points to the promises that if we put our faith and trust in you, that all of this new life and all of these promises will be ours. And it points, the Lord's Supper magnificently points to what you've done in our place, as baptism points to all of the benefits that we have in Christ, heart renewal, union with you, cleansing, all of these things, Father. And we thank you for this rich imagery. Open our hearts to receive these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.